You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Prashant? Good to be back with you. Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. Man, it's been a long time since we've done a podcast, and partly I have to apologize for that since uh, I did decide to take a brief vacation, um, and after that I was sick for a bit, so it took a while to get back to podcasts, but I have my voice back, and I'm officially back in the saddle, uh, so looking forward to talking. And of course, while I was on vacation, um, North Korea had to go ahead and carry out a new intercontinental range ballistic missile launch. Uh, the Hwasong-15 was introduced on November 29th at the, um, during the early hours of the morning in Korea, Certainly a development that I'll say wasn't at the top of my list of expectations, but also wasn't entirely unsurprising. Um, I think uh, we can get into a bit about why that was the case later. Um, But yeah, Prashant, I I thought on this episode, uh, you know, there's been a lot of developments with North Korea recently. So we can just go back and uh, briefly just take stock of um, where we've come with North Korea as 2017 winds to a close and maybe reflect on, you know, what might lie ahead for North Korea's... um, missile programs and just the general state of its capabilities in 2018. How does that sound? Sounds good. Cool. Well, uh, where do you want to start? Um, I guess uh, one place to start would be, you know, sort of the Hwasong 15 uh, as as a development. Like, what does that mean? You've written, uh, you know, a couple of pieces on this, both on the missile system as, as well as what the implications are for U.S.-North Korea relations and this issue going forward. So maybe we can start there and like you can offer a few thoughts and then we can move on to maybe like, you know, the other big thing is, you know, Tillerson's speech at the Atlantic Council this week that made a lot of headlines, but we can start maybe with the missile stuff and then. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no, the first thing I got into when I uh, got back from my trip was um, writing about the Hwasong 15, uh, which I was observing briefly while I was, uh, you know, Sipping on a cocktail by the pool, um, looking at this new monster of a ballistic missile, and it it, it is a monster. Uh, this missile is, by a large measure, the largest ballistic missile, both in terms of diameter and length, that North Korea has ever tested. Um, it is an absolute beast. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community assesses that if flown on a normal trajectory, it could range all parts of the U.S. mainland. So yes, that includes Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Uh, so that might give Trump a newfound uh, bit of urgency on North Korea, uh, though he probably doesn't need that given the war drums that we are sensing these days. Um, but yeah, this was um, this was an interesting development. Um, it appears to be, uh, you know, there's a lot about this missile that I can talk about uh, and get pretty wonky, especially I think there's a lot that's quite interesting about the engines. Uh, you know, we have two thrust chambers and no kind of auxiliary vernier engines uh, compared to the Hwasong-14, which had one large thruster paired with four smaller vernier engines for steering. Uh, so this is a different design. Um, it's it's certainly got a much larger re-entry vehicle to um, easily accommodate, I think, a, a thermonuclear bomb, uh, certainly the bomb of the design that North Korea showed off and claimed was a two-stage thermonuclear device. Uh, they've got high-yield nuclear weapons, and those weapons are intended for U.S. mainland urban targets, so this missile will be the one to deliver those, I think. And it's interesting, actually. I haven't seen too much discussion of this, uh, although I think a, a few analysts picked this up. And I'll actually, you know, I'll recommend to listeners that want to hear more about this missile. Uh, well, first, you can check out my article, The Diplomat, that goes into kind of a lot of what the U.S. intelligence community knows about this ballistic missile and what they've assessed so far. But also, um, Jeffrey Lewis at Arms Control Long um, has a pretty good podcast running down the the technical uh, specifications of this missile as well. So I recommend listening to that if you want to get really 
uh, a little bit geekier than we'll be able to get into um, on this podcast. Um, but yeah, I thought what was interesting is that, um, you know, North Korean state media broadcast a video of uh, Kim Jong-un observing this ballistic missile test, as they often do. And, um, you know, recently we've seen North Korea broadcast onboard camera footage from inside the missile's reentry vehicle. They did that with their first ICBM test. They did that with the February launch, uh, sorry, the May launch of the Pukuksong-2, the solid fuel medium range ballistic missile. They broadcast camera footage of the Earth from space. Um, and on this test, they actually broadcast footage from inside the reentry vehicle. And you see like a single kind of conical reentry vehicle with a lot of space around it. I think that's really interesting because, um, I think it suggests that, you know, the North Koreans are maybe treating the Hwasong-15 as a future-proof ICBM template for, um, you know, features like potentially multiple warheads down the line or potentially, more importantly, I think, penetration aids, which are a cheaper way for them to ensure that they can definitely beat U.S. homeland missile defenses um, in a future conflict. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot more to say about this launch, too. I mean, they carried it out again at the middle of the night, uh, like the second ICBM launch, the Hwasong-14 that they launched on July 28th also took place. That launch also took place in the early hours of the night. And they're doing this to, you know, showcase operational readiness that they can operate at um, odd times and they can, you know, potentially catch the U.S. off guard. I also found it interesting that Kim Jong-un observed this test from a kind of portable trailer with a glass window instead of a static kind of VIP observation area, which the U.S. intelligence community uses to predict upcoming North Korean tests. So that, again, you know, I think is an interesting development. Maybe they're trying to give um, foreign intelligence agencies just less of a warning before they launch. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is a really concerning development, I think. It, it shows that their ICBM force, you know, was probably never going to stop with the Hwasong-14, which is, you know, it, it's a good, efficient design, impressive for them, but it doesn't probably doesn't range the entire U.S. homeland with a large payload. So I think this is how they get around that problem. And, you know, this leaves little ambiguity that they can range the entire United States. Yeah. And I, I think also with 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 this uh, development, I mean, it does suggest a sort of like continued progress towards, um, you know, getting their testing up and making sure that they develop uh, a capability. Um, and I, th I guess like, you know, one one other thing to mention, just like in terms of the broader context for listeners, is that, I mean, this, this test was after a period where the North Koreans, you know, hadn't tested anything. I mean, we, we want to say it's an it's a moratorium of sorts, but they, they hadn't been testing for, I think it was, what, 70, 75, right? 75 yeah, days, so, right? yeah, something like that. I don't have the exact yeah. number off the top of my head. Uh, no, yeah. that, that's a really interesting point. I mean, there was a lot of speculation about why they weren't testing. I mean, there were some good hypotheses that I actually support. You know, it's just that it's the it's the winter harvest period. Um, it's the winter training cycle for the Korean People's Army, so they're not going to be firing off ballistic missiles. But I actually, you know, I didn't fully buy those. I thought that, you know, there was probably some research and development going on. The, the most recent test before this one was when they overflew Japan for the second time with the Hwasong-12 inter intermediate-range ballistic missile, and they flew that to a range further than what they need to strike Guam. So that was an important kind of display of credibility that they'd be able to range Guam in a war. Um, but, you know, I mean, there was testing activity. I reported on this at The Diplomat. I mean, they tested a a new solid fuel engine uh, that might be intended for either a new submarine-launched ballistic missile, mm -hmm. a new land-launched intermediate-range ballistic missile, or possibly even an ICBM down the line. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, that moratorium is also interesting in the context of um, recent statements by um, Joseph Yun, um, the mm -hmm. U.S. special representative for North Korea policy, um, you know, just just days before, uh, I guess a few weeks before North Korea launched the Hwasong-15. Um, Joe Yun was in New York speaking at a think tank talking about this um, 
you know, what the U.S. play was with North Korea. And effectively, I mean, the U.S. position now seems to be that talks can take place with North Korea if North Korea announces that it is entering a moratorium period for its nuclear and ballistic missile tests and then carries it out for 60 days. So there's this kind of 60-day timer that Joe right. Yun allegedly alluded to. And North Korea exceeded that, as you know, Prashant. I mean, you know, they exceeded that in September until they launched this new ICBM. But obviously, no talks took place. Uh, at least as far as we can see, nothing nothing serious at a high level occurred. Um, but that's because, you know, they need the North Koreans to actually come out and announce that, okay, we want to talk. We are going to demonstrate that by not carrying out any missile tests for a while, which I think is, you know, something the North Koreans aren't going to do. Absolutely. And and I think it, it, it really is sort of interesting in the context of the other activities we have going on, like, you know, like Joe Yoon. Um, he, he's uh, this week he's been in Japan and Thailand um, mm-hmm. and and one I know on on the Thailand visit they made a very strong message to the Thais that they want them to sort of you know increase the pressure campaign on on North Korea so you do have the you know that on the one hand and then you have sort of you know Tillerson coming out earlier this week and in his speech at the Atlantic Council sort of saying you know talks without preconditions but then the White House sort of saying, well, you know, our, our, our overall policy remains unchanged and we've already spoken about this. And so there's there's a lot of mixed messages going on. And we've talked about this before on North Korea and the administration's policy. Um, you know, you can find evidence for really any line of thought between the various cabinet officials and, and people undertaking the policy to support whatever line of argument uh, that you want. And, and I guess, you know, whether you're sitting in, in North Korea or you're sitting in China or Japan, people look at U.S. statements very, very carefully, even, even if, you know, in, uh, U.S. officials will say, well, you know, Tillerson can say whatever he wants, but the president is saying something. I mean, these are things that people take very seriously. So it, it's kind of a, a dilemma for us sort of here sitting as, as analysts because, you know, these statements are important internationally, but domestically it, 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 it's difficult to figure out what the context are for these remarks when you have so many different versions um, of events going on. I mean, and, and again, like as we've talked about before, like these things that, you know, Tillerson or the other officials are saying are, are not new, right? Like we, we know uh, that there have been feelers sent out on, on talks between the U.S. and North Korea for months, including with, with, with Joe Yoon. We know that there is an established channel of communication. We know that the North Koreans are trying to get up their, their sort of capabilities in terms of testing and we know that the U.S. is trying to pursue this pressure campaign while they're sort of leaving room for talks. But, you know, as we get all these rhetoric coming out and mixed messages, it really does muddy the picture, for which is which seems pretty clear to me, at least. Right? No, I think you nailed it. Um, and, you know, poor Tillerson, I mean, getting thrown under the, under the bus by his own spokesperson a day after he makes his speech. Yeah. Um, and you're right, you know, there was nothing new in that Tillerson speech. I think maybe it got a little overblown. I mean, he did. I think, you know, I don't want to undersell it. I mean, he did speak in a way that I think is unusual. I mean, he was pretty open about, you know, let's get in a room together and talk about the weather. We can talk about whether the table we should (laughs) sit around should be square or round. I mean, that kind of rhetoric is, you know, you'll often hear that kind of stuff from like proponents of talks with North Korea who are just like, you know, talks aren't, you know, a giveaway. They're simply talks. You know, you you get in a room, you see what each side wants. And I think Tillerson, to his credit, you know, um, was willing to explore that. But I mean, look, at the end of the day, what he really meant with that preconditions line was what he and Mattis had outlined in August. And that was really when that shift occurred, I think, when, you know, I mean, so like, you know, let's just briefly review this year in North Korea policy. The administration comes in February, they decide they're going to do a policy review. 
totally normal for a new administration to do that. The NFC gets to work. Uh, by April, they've sort of made up their minds. They announce, you know, strategic patience is dead. Maximum pressure and engagement is here to stay. Things muddle on. North Korea tests its new IRBM, tests its new ICBM in July. There's a new round of sanctions. And then in August, Tillerson and Mattis write this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, saying that they're going to hold Pyongyang to account. And in that op-ed, they make a pretty significant offer, which is that, you know, the precondition for talks is no longer a bona fide declaration of denuclearization intent. It is now simply a short-term moratorium to show us that you're serious about stopping your testing and we'll talk. And of course, you know, then they fly missiles over Japan. They carry out a nuclear test. We have the fire and fury moment. Um, and, you know, all this time, I mean, you know, Joe Yun's been at work. I mean, he's been talking to the New York channel, the the uh, North Korean permanent mission to the UN, which is one of the only venues where U.S. Right. officials and North Korean officials uh, still communicate. But nothing's been happening at a higher level than that. Um, and, you know, like the mixed messaging thing has also been the theme of the year, right? I mean, everything from fire and fury to kind of Mattis saying that, you know, we don't favor military action to kind of McMaster saying that North Korea is irrational, undeterrable, classical deterrence theory doesn't apply, Tillerson backing Mattis, Tillerson kind of bumbling around. I mean... You know, the joke may be that, you know, people say that the U.S. doesn't have a North Korea policy, but maybe it has three or four North Korea policies. And how does North Korea know which messages to take seriously? I mean, I think, you know, they understand. I mean, Evan Oss knows his piece and The New Yorker had some great quotes from North Koreans themselves, you know, about kind of who to take seriously in the U.S. I mean, it seems like they were putting a lot of you know weight in what McMaster had to say, but also obviously in what Trump has to say. I mean, he is, at the end of the day, the president, and it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it especially doesn't matter, unfortunately, what Tillerson says. I mean, he's probably one of the secretaries of state with the least degree of credibility that we've seen in uh, at least a generation, possibly longer. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he consistently gets undercut. I mean, when Trump tweeted out, you know, don't waste your time uh, pursuing diplomacy, um, when, when Rex Tillerson was in China, too. I mean, that obviously doesn't do wonders. Um, but, you know, I wanted to ask you, Prashant, I mean, uh, obviously I think that with every oncoming North Korean missile test since the first ICBM test, the kind of specter of preemptive military action, preventive military action has been slowly rising, it seems. And, you know, there's kind of dark hints that come out from officials, including McMaster, that time is running out. Um, you know, you have Lindsey Graham, who's a lawmaker, not part of the administration, but, you know, talking about today, that there's a 30% chance of using military force. I don't know how he came, at the, you know, came to that number. But, you know, I mean, there's this debate going on right now is that is this actually, you know, a real debate and there is a serious consideration of military action or is this a, a, a coordinated bluff to, you know, condition China to take its obligations on sanctions enforcement more seriously? And, you know, I personally don't, I uh, haven't really made up my mind about that. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I've, I've I've spoken to very credible and informed people um, connected to the administration who've made the case for both sides. And it seems like, you know, there's there's really no settling this for now, at least. Um, certainly, we don't see any movements of military assets, which I think are the most reliable indicator of any intent to undertake serious military action. And certainly, you know, U.S. allies, at least South Korea, has been very clear that they oppose any sort of unilateral U.S. Ac action without consulting Seoul. Um, but, you know, what's your uh, what's your sense with uh, how winds are blowing right now? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, it, this goes back to the theme that we talked about earlier, which is, you know, mixed messaging. I think with a traditional administration, um, you know, take the Obama administration as an example, where you have a president who demonstrates uh, restraint and is sort of a, a more sort of run of the mill U.S. president. I think the, the odds of, of war 
um, would, would be very low and close to none. Um, but I think in this administration, where you have mixed messages, but you also have a president who has a reputation, it may not actually be true, but who has a reputation for extreme risk-taking on, on this particular issue, as well as more generally, uh, I, I think you know the chance of um, uh, that happening cannot be ruled out. And I think especially if you have people like Lindsey Graham saying, you know, there's 30% chance of attack this time, if the North Koreans launch launch another time, maybe it's a seventy percent chance. I and again, I don't know where he's arriving at these numbers from either. Um, but you know, these things do kind of muddy the waters as to whether this is something that is actually an option being considered. I mean, I think you know we've discussed this on a previous podcast about North Korea, where like you know you we can't expect the United States, any administration, to rule out. Uh, military options as you know analysts would do right they can't sort of say they have to say all options on the table because while they're pursuing a pressure strategy they have to keep the sort of stick approach while they're pursuing talk so that's not what uh, folks are asking for but I think it is reasonable to expect that the administration is talking about this in a very unified fashion because you know the 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 UN uh, undersecretary for political affairs right Jeffrey Feltman was on a trip to North Korea and you know, among the other sort of developments that that have been taking place, and and one of the things that he mentioned was, you know, what you and I have, have already been talking about in the podcast, which is that we're really worried about an accidental risk of conflict mm-hmm. and miscalculation. But under this administration, I think there's the additional variable, which is, you know, deliberate uh, action and provocation could lead to to war from North Korea. And I think with every action that the North Koreans take, there's a sense that. You know, people in the region are really nervous about whether this could actually happen. And I think, you know, you correctly summed it up. There's a debate about the debate, right? So there's a sense of like, you know, is this preventive war thing something that's just a bluff or is this something that is an option that actually is contemplated? And if you talk to U.S. policymakers who who have had experience on this, I mean, they'll tell you that, I mean, the U.S. has planning and contingencies for every conceivable scenario. So obviously there is a scenario. For the U.S. to undertake preventive war, but that's those scenarios say that there's going to be extremely high costs uh, for the United States, for South Korea, for Japan, and potentially for China as well. And and these are not very um, good options for the United States. So I think we all are clear that the military option is extremely costly. We need to get to a diplomatic uh, solution, but. Uh, in this administration, more so than any administration that, that I can remember, I think that the worry of a deliberate uh, and potential preventive or preemptive war um, is more likely than a conventional administration. Absolutely. I think uh, on that cheery note, maybe we should uh, you know, pep things up a little and talk about what the year ahead might hold for North Korea. And I'm <laughs> yeah. being sarcastic, obviously. I'm not very optimistic about the year ahead in terms of North Korea's capabilities. I mean, uh, you know, I think um, one of my articles for The Diplomat that probably held up the best was one I wrote in the first week of January 2017, where I called 2017 the year of the North Korean ICBM. I mean, that's probably been one of my better predictions at the time. I mean, this was certainly the year of the North Korean Intercontinental Range Ballistic Missile. They, they tested two different designs. They flight tested them three times. All flight tests succeeded. Kim Jong-un declared the completion of his country's strategic nuclear deterrent, although I don't think we should take that too seriously because, uh, you know, they just had a munitions industry kind of convention, and it's yeah. very clear that things are still chugging along and there's other stuff in the pipelines. I mean, 
Look, I mean, one of the things I'll say is that their solid fuel program, um, and I've talked about solid fuel on the podcast before, the reason it matters is it gives ballistic missiles a degree of flexibility, responsiveness, and survivability that liquid fuel missiles um, simply don't provide, at least in the form that North Korea has chosen to deploy them. So it's looking at solid fuel missiles that will make its force even more difficult to uh, preempt and prevent um, and, um, you know, make disarming North Korea with a first strike simply unthinkable, more unthinkable than it already is, I think. Um, and that's all, I think, coming around the corner. Uh, whether that's coming in 2018 or not, I don't know. But the North Koreans have been, uh, you know, in one of the ways that they have surprised me is simply the time frame at which they've been operating. Uh, we are seeing things that I've expected much sooner than I've expected them. So like the Hwasong 15 would have been something that originally maybe I would have expected to see in 2018, but we saw it by the end of 2017. Um, and there's a sense that the North Koreans are operating under some time pressure. I mean, uh, Tae Yong Ho, the uh, former North Korean um, deputy ambassador in London, the highest profile defector from the regime this year, talked earlier this year about how Kim Jong-un had directed the country to uh, achieve a this kind of you know complete nuclear deterrent by the end of the year. So maybe that's why we saw this flight test in November. But next right. year, there's a lot coming. I think there's a new submarine launch ballistic missile, potentially one with a much longer range, uh, a range potentially in the you know, in excess of 3,000 kilometers, maybe 4,000 kilometers uh, to be tested next year. I think they're going to flesh out their short-range and medium-range forces. They're already mass-producing their Pukukasong-2 medium-range um, ballistic missiles. Uh, they've been doing a lot of interesting things with their SCUD arsenal that I've reported about the diplomat. They're um, increasing their precision. I think they'll continue to make forays into that in in 2018 um but above all i mean one of the things i'm looking forward to is just you know how many of these icbms are, are they going to create they have a lot of fissile material they have enough to create a fairly large and robust nuclear force that would make the u.s certainly think twice and or three times before undertaking any kind of military action effectively guaranteeing that the u.s mainland would be retaliated against with a missile that u.s missile defenses probably would not be able to reliably uh, defeat, at least not in a way that I'd be willing to bet on. Um, so I think, you know, there's there's a lot around the corner here with North Korea. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll probably put some of these thoughts into an article soon, so keep an eye out for that. Um, right, Prashant, anything, uh, anything else today? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of 2018, I guess, like, what, what I'm looking to see is, I mean, traditionally what you see in the, the past two administrations, you saw the George W. Bush administration come in sort of signaling uh, initially a very tough approach towards North Korea, but then transitioning towards talks and the six-party talks and the whole genesis of that. You saw the Obama administration then come in and initially signal actually quite a conciliatory position diplomatically, and then it hardened over time. And I think the reasonable thing that people hope will happen is that after a period where the United States Trump administration tries this sort of pressure campaign and accelerates it a little bit, and the North Koreans are comfortable that they've gotten to a level and capability that the United States recognizes, then you'll have talks and that this administration's tough line on North Korea will eventually moderate. And I, I just, I'm interested to see how that sort of dynamic develops and if, it, if there's anything that interrupts that. And I just think as we think through that prism, we shouldn't ignore the other regional developments that are happening, right? We've got the 2018 Olympics, Right. One event that, you know, sort of will, will sort of be a, a, a test, a litmus test for regional diplomacy. You've got how South Korea's re relationships going to develop with China because South Korea under under moons developing its own sort of foreign policy agenda. And I, I also should, you know, sort of mention, too, that like, you know, the, the state of relations between the U.S. and Japan and the U.S. and South Korea are, are good on in several dimensions. But 
the trilateral relationship tends to ebb and flow and any number of uh, problems and challenges can be created. So, I mean, there, there's no shortage of other variables here that could sway this one way or the other, because I think the, the conventional line for U.S. policy on North Korea is, you know, you've got to get your alliances uh, and those relationships in order in order to get any kind of pressure campaign on the North Korea to work. And you also have to get the Chinese on board. And I think, you know, the other variable is Xi Jinping after the Party Congress. I don't know uh, what that post-Party Congress environment will, will do for Chinese foreign policy in terms of whether it will uh, make the Chinese cooperate more with the U.S. or less with the U.S. I mean, that's kind of the, the sort of regional situation that I'm looking to see for 2018. Yeah, thanks a lot for zooming us out, actually. I totally forgot that we should probably talk about the regional context. I was a bit too focused on the missile systems. Um, yeah, on the U.S.-China front, I think I, you know, I expect that relationship to actually sour in 2018. So it'll be interesting to see how that feeds back into North Korea diplomacy. Now, the question of diplomacy more generally, I mean, this is going to sound really pessimistic, but like my, my take on the Trump administration is that even if the stars align, the North Koreans um, signal that they're willing to talk, that they feel confident in their deterrent, they feel that they're in an advantageous new, um, negotiating position. I simply, you know, just don't have high expectations for the mechanics of those talks to actually go very well. I mean, the Trump administration simply has not shown uh, at the highest levels of government, obviously, you know, things are different at lower levels uh, where a lot of things are bureaucratized, uh, institutionalized, functioning on autopilot, but talks with North Korea would be anything but, you know, it'd be like the Iran deal all over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, this administration simply hasn't shown that it's willing to, you know, use diplomacy and negotiation as a method of, um, you know, pursuing the U.S. national interest. I mean, we've seen the opposite in 2017 with pulling out of, you know, all sorts of kind of diplomatic agreements for uh, a variety of reasons. I mean, diplomacy most importantly requires concessions. And uh, I, I, you know, I simply don't see any evidence that there is a serious debate or conversation um, in, you know, within the Republican Party among lawmakers, but also within the Trump administration about what the United States might be willing to concede to North Korea. I mean, there is a sense that we can't tolerate their ICBM capability, but they're not going to give it up. They have nuclear weapons. They have the know-how. Um, they would need significant concessions to, uh, you know, even adhere to a freeze deal at this point. Um, you know, holding back military exercises with South Korea, stopping B-1B Lancer flights to the Korean Peninsula, all of these things would be on the table from the North Korean perspective. And I just don't get the sense that, you know, the that the Trump administration would be willing to accept those in good faith. And, and, you know, there are a lot of kind of reasons that those concessions, you know, maybe shouldn't be made to North Korea because of what they right. say about the state of the alliances and, and reassuring South Korea and Tokyo in the era of ICBM influenced uh, decoupling, which we've talked about on the show before. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pessimistic note to end on. But I think, uh, you know, the best we can hope for is probably that we uh, muddle through with North Korea, um, that, uh, you yeah. know, things don't get so bad that we spiral into conflict. But I also don't think that things will, um, you know, will ever hit that kind of platonic, you know, analytically clear idea of negotiations and concessions on both sides uh, panning out in the way that we might like. Yeah, so, and also, I mean, the other thing that to keep in mind for listeners is, I mean, we're talking about U.S.-North Korea policy, um, but... You know, the high-level positions, uh, we've been saying this multiple times on the podcast, the high-level positions for Asia are mostly still unfilled. Yep. Um, and so, you know, any number of things could happen in terms of how this administration reacts. And I think, to your point about this administration potentially, you know, being not as concessionary on the diplomatic front, I mean, there's potential for that to get worse rather than better for those who are looking for a way out for talks, because... 
you know, what the traditional line of thinking is that you will have more hawkish people on the Republican front going into the administration. And I'm not sure how that's going to play into the idea of talks on North Korea, but I'm, I'm not sure if this sort of concessionary sort of uh, dovish approach on, on the North Korean front may actually pan out as, as people hope for. And I think, you know, the point that you brought up is spot on about talks. I mean, just because we arrive at a point where we start talks doesn't mean that we end up with a solution. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen for us to get there. So yeah. that's a good note to, to sort of emphasize. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, Prashant, it's a pleasure to be back at the, po- at the podcast game with you. Uh, looking forward to doing more of these. Yep, same here. All right, and uh, for our listeners, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do so so you can uh, keep up with future episodes. And if you like what you heard and you haven't left us a rating yet, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks, and we'll be back soon with more.